Hello and welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Over the many years I've been running a business, I've met many, many successful people, entrepreneurs, sports stars, celebrities, and dare I say, even royalty. So what makes a person successful? Do we know what success is? And the all-important question, can we create success for ourselves? This podcast series invites a diverse group of people to share their insights, their wisdom, and the things they've learned along the way. Now, I'm pretty convinced there's not a single person out there, and I'm fairly sure I'm right in this, not a single person listening to the Sandro Forte podcast today who has experienced workplace pressure like my next guest. Dan Lowe's is a former RAF fighter pilot and executive officer of the world-famous Red Arrows. We've never had one of those on the show. This is going to be very exciting. And it's going to be exciting because Dan has consistently operated at a world-class level in an area where time-critical information arriving at the right place at the right time is literally a matter of life and death. Dan has now carried on his mindset and transferred that into day-to-day life and business creating a demanding, highly dynamic working space, which, you guessed it, there's no room for error. Dan, I have heard your name mentioned a dozen times over the last few months, so it absolutely meant that we had to have you on the Sandro Forte podcast. I know that you are a busy guy. We're going to find out what you do now. Uh, But thank you for finding that space for us uh, to join us on the Sandro Forte podcast, because I know from everything we've talked about at the top of the show, you are going to be simply stunning as a guest. So no pressure, but you're used to that anyway. Welcome to the show. Sandra, what an intro. And thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a podcast I enjoy listening to myself, but I've learned so much from it. So the fact I'm just here is an absolute honour. If I can give you any gems, or if your listeners could take anything from it, then it would be uh, an absolute pleasure to spend the next half an hour speaking to you. Thank you. That is an absolute guarantee, because I know what you're going to talk about. Uh, the only thing I'm going to say as well, before we start, is you are the first guest in 174 uh, that has stood up for the podcast. Um, you, are, you are a bundle of energy, but we'll understand why in a minute. I, I don't think you're the kind of guy that can ever sit still. Um, so let's start with, with the obvious, the background. We'll talk about uh, your very unique profession in a moment, because I'm sure lots of people want to know about that, not least me. But um, in terms of your CV, potted history, where did it all start? Where, you, where do you come from? Uh, and how the hell do you end up in an RAF fighter jet? Big picture is is slightly cliche. I had a dream, and that dream was because I came from almost an aviation background. My my father had flown airplanes. My mother had been in the Royal Air Force, but at the time they'd moved, they'd gone and chased in a very adventurous life through the Middle East, and eventually into Hong Kong, where I was born, grew up. But as I'm sure you've been, as we spoke to you just before we came on the show, you know Hong Kong is a very small place, and. I went to this amazing school. Do you remember the old airport where they used to come through the buildings and turn onto that runway, you know, surrounded by the ocean? Well, my school was right on that corner that the aircraft used to bank around. So you imagine, you know, you're five, 10 years old, developing this dream, listening to your father talking about flying, listening to these amazing stories of adventure and daring, things going wrong, these most romantic thoughts of flying through the night across, you know, the five different continents. And and then you go to school and there's these huge bits of metal dropping out the sky and turning around your school and landing. It just filled me with this enormous amount of inspiration of going, that's what I want to do. Now, 
in Hong Kong at the time, there wasn't a military presence. So, you know, the fact that I became a fighter pilot, that, that was blended with, we used to come back on summer holidays and see UK-based family. And naturally being in the summer, there'd be an air show somewhere. So we'd go and watch it. And I just remember these jets screaming up and down the line. They, so so fast and loud that it would shake. Yeah, you know, they'd go past before you could hear them. And then all you could feel was that vibration in your chest. And again, I'd go back to Hong Kong as a, a young boy and dream of these amazing machines in a different country. And, and it all came... To, you know, into this this visualization of that's what I want to do. Um, I was very lucky. And I genuinely believe I was very lucky because I look at people now who go through education, they go to these amazing universities and they're amazingly talented and have so much to give, but they just don't know which area that they, they're going to go into. And I think that can sometimes stop people from ever reaching their full potential. So that was it. I, I had the seed planted. I had a dream. I was five, six years old when I first even started telling my parents I'm going to be a fighter pilot. And that was it. Moved to the UK mid-teens and at uh, 18. In fact, a week after my 19th birthday, I arrived at a place called RAF Cranwell in Lincolnshire to start my officer training, which then became, became the start of a, a reasonably successful fighter pilot career. Wow. Um, I had a dream. I had a dream to be a surgeon and an astronaut and a, and a policeman at various points. Didn't mean to say I actually achieved any of those dreams. So I'm, I want to explore with you today how that dream turned into reality, because there's lots of people listening that go, yeah, well, I've got a dream as well, but doesn't mean to say it's going to happen. So I'm really interested to know um, about that kind of process that you went through. But if I could just fast forward just a moment, a little bit. Um, I really, really want to latch on to something that you can bring, a uniqueness that you can bring to this podcast because you have a qualification on your CV that no one else has. And that is this, um, this environment in which you placed yourself where there is literally no room for error. Now, I, I liken that to the world of business and life in general where people go, well, I'm young. What's the worst that can happen? I go bankrupt. I lose my business. Um, you know, unfortunately, the relationship ends. I can dust myself down and I can build it all back up again. And, and so people feel quite comforted in knowing that there's always a fallback position. Now, there isn't for you. There wasn't for you. One tiny error and it's all over. Right. So how do you deal? And I'm kind of asking you two questions in one. So apologies. Um, but how do you deal? And does it take a unique kind of person to deal with that degree of pressure? And how do you deal with that pressure? Is it about preparation? Is it about a mindset? What is it, Dan, that allows you to do what you do up in the skies? Well, preparation, you've, you've nailed it there. That's, that's the biggest, one of the biggest things because you can't just turn up day one and be a world-class X, Y, or Z. And for me, I couldn't turn up and be a world-class fighter pilot day one. And if I did, I probably wouldn't last very, very long at all. And I'll come on to a story in a moment about how that is recognized within the industry. Yeah, I joined the Royal Air Force, as mentioned, at 19 years old, and there was a graduated process to get me through to the end goal, which for me was to be a fighter pilot. Now, that starts off with becoming an officer. Then that starts off with flying a small type airplane, one that you and I would probably, you know, on the weekend when you go out, you see the little white airplanes flying, like the Cessna type airplanes. You know, they teach you for six months on that airplane uh, to get to a certain standard. Now, this is where the mindset starts coming in because it's not a competition but it's kind of a competition because not everyone could be a fighter pilot. You know, everyone that joins the air force as a pilot can't be a fighter pilot. We need pilots to go and fly the Chinook aircraft, which we've just seen, you know, all around the world doing stuff without being on special forces operations or develop, um, delivering humanitarian aid after earthquakes in Pakistan or, you know, um, flying, uh, 
aid to the north of the country you know, when you see those floods they fly troops and sandbags up to help people out or whether that be become a transport pilot which we've just seen this week alone you know the biggest airlift since um berlin in in the second world war of getting all those people out of afghanistan you know flying through the night fifteen thousand people returned to the uk i mean all these jobs are amazing in their own right and they can't just have people turn up and say, I want to be a fighter pilot because that's sex job and all the rest of it. It just doesn't work. So you get onto these smaller courses, they teach you to fly airplanes, but there has to be a line in the sand. And once you cross that line in the sand, you're either going to be a fighter pilot or you go into these other roles. And I don't want to play those other roles down because I've just explained how amazing these people are that operate those aircraft. But you have to be at the top of, top of your game to get into the fighter world for all the things you've already explained, how quickly, really how quickly it can go wrong and how you need to be on top of your game. You then go onto a faster airplane or a more complex aircraft. And over the next five years, you grow, not only as an aviator, as an officer, but as a person. The mindset of, I need to be at the top of the game, but I can't do it in too much of a competitive way because I need to be a team player, but I need to back myself. And the biggest thing for me throughout that whole process, and I genuinely say this is the luckiest thing that ever happened to me, is that I failed throughout that process quite early on at each step. So on that first course, I remember there was one particular trip I still sometimes have nightmares over it. It's such a simple trip when you look back at it now, but at the time I just couldn't gauge what they wanted from me. And so I failed the trip. Now this trip was known for being a big marker in the sand, as I say, about who progresses to be a fighter pilot and who maybe with a bit more work would be a good pilot that can go elsewhere. And they gave me another shot at it. I passed it luckily with flying colors because I'd, I'd learned more about it and off I went. Next course, same thing, next course, same thing. And so I found myself in the end being probably the only person on my course who failed consistently, uh, which doesn't sound great. Um, but you know, when I look back at hindsight, I went on to be a single seat fighter pilot. I was a Top Gun graduate and I went on to be a Red Arrows pilot. So it didn't hold me back, but what it did, it taught me where I was failing in my preparation. And therefore I knew how to focus better better prepare myself for any big event coming forward. I didn't fear failure anymore. I understood what it meant. I, you know, those sleepless nights, that pit, that awful feeling in your stomach when you know something's gone wrong and it's just not going to let you move on with your life. I knew very quickly how that felt, how it affected me, but how I could harness it. How could I turn that into a positive? Uh, and then how can I take that forward? So the preparedness of five years of flying training mixed in with the mindset of not fearing failure meant that when I finally got to a frontline fighter aircraft, yeah, I, clearly I was intimidated. This thing is, you know, it's 50, 60 feet wide. It's you know, 30 feet wide, 50, 60 feet long. It goes 55,000 feet, twice the speed of sound. It's when you go around the corner, it's 9G. 9G, if your head weighs, the, a human being's head weighs the stone. You know, so as we're going around a corner, our heads were weighing nine stone. You know, if you moved your neck in the wrong position, you that was it. Your flying career was over. It would rip the muscles down your back, let alone you're screaming against those G-forces with your muscles just to stay conscious. You know, that's the stuff you're fighting against. And if you got to that point, having not overcome the fear of failure, then it would have eaten you up in a heartbeat. So a myriad of questions hopefully answer this. Preparedness, mindset. The ability to accept failure meant that when you when I finally got that shot, age 23, and I strapped into a frontline aircraft, the Eurofighter Typhoon, yes, the situation was intimidating, but I had full control of myself and my mindset, and I genuinely thought I was going to succeed. I, I've got this, um, you use the word myriad. I've got this myriad of thoughts going on inside of my head at the minute, as I'm sure lots of people listening have. So on, on the one uh, hand, I'm kind of agog with what I'm hearing. Um, and, you know, the pressure that you are under, I'm also smiling to myself because I'm I'm kind of picturing the first meeting with your Red Arrows teammates and uh, and you're introduced as Dan Lowe, 
the guy uh, who always gets things wrong the first time he tries them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh. hey, I, 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 I have no shame in saying, so I, the whole way I went through flying training, I, and I'm incredibly good friends with the guys that I went through training with, as you can imagine, you, you form this brotherhood. And then especially when you get onto a squadron and you guys start doing things, you become closer and closer as a team anyway, especially when you're really pushed to the limitation of, of human ability. Uh, you know, you're really relying on each other to get you through. So the, the friendships, the bonds that you build, especially I was in uh, the service for 17 and a half years. You know, I had some, some, some friends that will be with me for life. Um, and I went through training, you know, they were winning awards for the best at aerobatics, the best at formation, uh, the best at low level, you know, uh, tactics, the best at the closest to the target when dropping these little practice bombs. I always just got the good lad award. You know, it was like, oh, thank you for trying or, you know, the best, all the ones that you don't want to win. But when I look back now, they're my, exactly that, the pat on the back. And it got, I got to the end of the fine training and it was this one course that is a very difficult course. It's the attack weapons course where you, tactical and weapons course, where they've taught you to fly the airplane. But now you have four intense months to show you how to, to fight an airplane. How can you fight in it? Not only can they put you in positions where you, know, you get attacks are sprung on you, airborne, you know, other jets are sent out to try and, you know, get behind you because that would simulate shooting you down. So you're now doing like dogfights at 250 feet off the floor, you know, avoiding mountaintops and trees while these guys are trying to stop you get to the target. You, you get to that level where you're not, well, I, I could ask, and you know, I'd, I'd like your, your listeners to imagine just this scenario. You, you, you've driven to work today. Now, rewind if you can to when you learned to drive your car. We, we were so worried about how many revs we had before we let the clutch out that we could probably tell you every red light we stopped at because we hated them. They were stressful moments. You know, you could, I could tell you how many roundabouts I had to go around. But if I told you today, you know, on your drive to work today, you know, how many times did you indicate left or how many times did you have to stop? You have no idea because you're already thinking about where you're going. You're probably singing your favorite song. You're thinking about an argument that you've just had, or you're thinking about how you're going to process state. You're not thinking anymore about driving that car. And that's the level we get to when we are flying. So if you're worried about flying the airplane, then there's no way you could then have the mental capacity to deal with having a spraying attack or, you know, we're running out of fuel here. Can we hit the target? Do we go home? You know, or we're at 50,000 feet. We're going at 18 miles a minute because we operate in miles per minute when we're going that fast. You know, this target's 100 miles away. I've got five minutes to sort this out. Actually, the target's coming at me at the same speed. So I've only got two minutes to sort this out. So if you're too worried about flying the airplane, you simply couldn't couldn't process that information. So anyway, this course was teaching us to get to that level. And at the time, you don't realize it, but when I look back on my career, it's probably the proudest moment. It's, I, I again, all the guys got best tactical pilot, best this, best that, all to do with their flying ability. And the, the award I got, I'm most proud of, I was the one that the instructors would most want to go to war with. And that, that to me, has been one of the most special awards I've ever won, won because it was nothing to do with my flying ability. It was to do with, everything that goes around it, that I conduct myself in a certain way. Yeah, I, I have certain aims and beliefs. I prepare myself so that these guys would look right or left at me at those times in your life when you really want someone to be there, when the chips are down, potentially you're in someone else's back garden in a fast-flung country in the world and it's all going wrong and they'd want you on their wing. And I just thought yeah, that was the most special award I could ever win. Kudos to you. For the millennials out there listening, Dan's earlier reference to revs and clutches for those of you who don't know what he's talking about, there was once three pedals in a motor vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought, just thought I'd clarify that in case people are a bit stuck. Um, the, now, you've mentioned the word team a couple of times, Dan. Uh, so I guess the obvious question is, what do you look for in, in a team member? 
because teams play a very, very impo important role in society, whether it's political, whether it's the army, whether it's uh, in, in a business environment, whether it's in a family, for example. What do you look for in team members? We've heard about what they clearly look for in you and they've recognized that clearly. You know, do you have to adapt to new ways of working because it's not always uh, the Dan Lowe's way, it's, you know, particularly in the Red Arrows, you all have a role to play. What do you look for in other people? If you could build a team, what are those prerequisites that have to be on the, the check sheet for you? Look, I genuinely believe I, I have been part of one of the best teams in the world. And that is, as we've mentioned a few times, as a Red Arrows pilot. And I don't just mean that because isn't the flying great? Isn't what we do as a team fantastic? Isn't it shocking? Isn't it inspiring? Isn't it all the things that actually the core of the Red Arrows is all about? Going around inspiring people to be the best in whatever they choose to be, wherever they are in the world, and to continue to chase excellence. That's that's When you see a Red Arrows display, that's what people are trying to say. But they're not just the best team in the world for that. I think they're best because the way in which exactly we're going to talk about now, the way they select team members, how they train team members, how they go about looking after team members. And, and that's why I'm so proud to have, a, have ever been a part of it and, and to now talk about it. To get the right team, if the Red Arrows went after the nine best pilots in the, in the Royal Air Force, it wouldn't make it past Wednesday. It would fail, you know, because there would just be too many too many issues to deal with. There might be ego to deal with. There might be uh, personal interest. There might be uh, ability. There might be the inability to, uh, to, you know, people who lack empathy. All these things that you need to have a world-class team. So what we do is when we when we built that team, clearly you have to go and uh, set your, uh, your cast your net wide. That's what I'm trying to say, to, to get the most opportunity for people to come in. But what we then do is we, let's say we had, you know, 30 people apply. Uh, we pray see each one of them into set categories and it could be i don't know one to five bananas a to a to m whatever you want it to be it's just some type of system where you can rank people on paper who you think are at the top of the game who are middling and who are probably tail ending and we do all of that without names now the reason we do that without names is that we're choosing a candidate or a team a potential team member based off their personal performance over a 10 to 15 year career up until this point so again, excellent pilot, very good at um, formation, let's say, naturally. Uh, reports from instructors that they are receptive to debrief points. That's a huge part for a successful team. But they also are interested in developing themselves personally for the greater good of the team, which means they might not see that reward or that recognition in their own right, but they'll see the overall team starting to, to elevate on a world stage. So we kind of we do that. Anyway, we, we go through a round. We probably get that down to about 15 people. And then we apply names. And names is really important because it might be different in businesses because you're looking from people in elsewhere. But when you're looking for a team within a business, it's very important because you've now created your top 15 without names. And then we apply names after. And when I mean into team or into business, I mean that because in the Royal Air Force, oh, there's thousands, thousands of pilots. But Thousands isn't very big, especially when you go all over the world on operations, you're going to bump into these people. And being human beings, we form prejudices, which is awful, but we do. We have first opinions and people. Uh, and especially when you've worked in an environment that's stressful or when people are you know, operating at the limit of their fatigue levels, you, know, you probably don't always get the true character of someone. And so it's important that we eradicate that completely. So we take 15 people and then we apply names. And that's where it becomes really important because now it's not down to ability. Now we're looking for someone who might be an ambassador for the brand. 
who's going to come in in the morning and actually see that yesterday two people left a coffee cup on the side and instead of walking past it and going i'm going to whinge about that later they pick it up and they go and wash it because they know when everyone else walks in behind them a tidier workspace is probably going to increase the morale of that team who's going to see an opportunity and go i can elevate team morale here or i can take an opportunity that would be greater good for the team here and they'll get buy-in later on rather than waiting to be led led to that point um and if I, if I may just put a Red Arrows example on it, uh, one of the, the great honours of being the executive officer of the Red Arrows was that I was able to, um, I was bestowed, if I say, the honour of uh, conducting the flying tests for the new pilots trying to get in. So Red One would go and do a loop and roll. I would be in a different aircraft with a candidate in my aeroplane and I would assess, write the report and that would go into their final category. Now, one particular manoeuvre would just be a loop. Now this aeroplane, this particular pilot may have not flown this airplane for years. That doesn't matter. We'll go and do a loop. No feedback. We we'll give them 10 seconds and we'll do a second loop. And now this is very important feeding into what I'm saying about the personality. That second loop could be worse than the first. You know, it, it could, it might not even look like a loop, but what I'm looking for in that second loop is an individual who in their first one hasn't accepted what they've just done as good enough someone who's been able to immediately review their own performance, debrief themselves, and make a conscious effort to try and improve their performance immediately. And I'm talking 10 seconds later, doing a loop on a red, on red one's wing. So that's the kind of character that we fit into that. And if you can mix that personality with ability, that's when you get, that's when you get a world-class team. Oh, what a fantastic answer. You've mentioned the word debrief a few times. I'd like to latch onto that and ask you, how important is debriefing? Again, lots of um, lots of obvious links with business and life in general. Tell us about debriefing and its importance, Dan. Well, just to go back onto the point I made earlier, bring it forward about failing. You know, a debrief is uh, failing doesn't have to mean that it's the end of the world. Like you know, just just a, a tiny failure. And did we get one hundred percent record? No. Did we get ninety nine point nine percent? Yeah. Okay. So there's a point one percent failure there. You know that that's it's a it's a big word that people fear the sound of. But let's be honest, it's either a pass or a fail. If that's what, if you want total success or if you want to be a high performer, it's pass and fail. There's no maybe, there's no gray area, it's, it's black and white. So that's why the debrief is incredibly important because once you accept failure and realize that it's the ultimate tool to learning yourself and learning how to get better, then the debrief is the platform in which to do it. Now, in the Red Arrows, we'd like to consider ourselves, I mentioned before how we select guys with that ego, just just hear me out on this. We'd like to consider ourselves one of the best teams in the world. Um, and that's not because of ego. That's not because look at us. That's because we believe we could pick up those nine airplanes, do, take our show, and you could put us in any place in the world and we would deliver exactly the same results with a, uh, a lesser support team around us, with time zone differences, with environmental factors, with anything. You could put the red arrows anywhere in the world and you would get a world-class display. And that's why I truly believe they're one of the best teams in the world. Now that comes from hours and hours and hours of looking at what we got wrong. Not what we got right, what did we get wrong? Uh, it's, in fact, it's the Bournemouth Air Show this weekend. Um, where we now, it's um, the start of September. You know, the guys will be down there, top of their game, coming towards the middle to the end of their season. Come October, when the season's over, they'll rip that team down apart. They'll get two new pilots and they'll fly three to six times a day, five days a week. And what they'll do is 
they'll go up and they'll try one maneuver after the next, after the next. And they won't go on and do the full show. That'll take months to build up to. Every time those pilots land, they will not do another thing until they've debriefed. That debrief could be 10 minutes. It could be 20 minutes. They tend to be about 30 to 45 minutes because if you go on for two hours, people just switch off. But they will not get in that airplane. And in my three and a half years with the team, I never once, apart from actually my last ever display, because you're too busy popping the champagne and giving your loved ones a hug, um, I never, ever, ever got in the airplane without having gone through a formal debrief. And that can happen in a conference room. That could happen in a hotel lobby. That could happen on the wing of a jet if you're in somewhere that isn't applicable to a space in which to do it. And it's a very important process we did. One of the big things we do, uh, and I talk about this a lot with businesses, it's, it's something I think really resonates, is we took we took as much emotion out of it as we could. So I'm sat here now, Sandro, instead of saying, you know, you're, let's say your host, I'm interviewee, right? Rather than saying, Sandra, I think that was a poor question. I'd say, I think the host there could have asked a better question. And so just by removing name from the process, it's completely taken away that, that individualism, if you like. So it was never, Dan, that was poor. You were too slow. You were too far. Look, look at that role. You're, you're, it's awful. It was no, nine. I think you could tighten it up there or three, you're a bit wide, seven, just push it up a little bit. And so straight away, we identified a position, not a person. And we found over years that a tried and tested method that that got rid of those barriers. People are now listening to their position, how they can be better for the team, not why everyone's going in on, on Dan for being having a bad day out. And not only that, we gave them an opportunity to speak. So before we ever debriefed anyone, we always asked them first, we went around the room, little council, and said, how did it go for you? What is it you went for? What went wrong? You know, for example, you know, the editor of this podcast today might listen to this later and go, what on earth? Why, why was the sound quality poor? Why didn't you get that point across? And, and get frustrated with what's happening. But then when he sits down with you and says, well, what happened there? You could say, well, the internet was poor. You know, Dan wasn't on his game. There was something happening in the background. There was some distraction there. And then actually, all of a sudden, now that they've got your point of view before they've gone, you know, they've had a, had a debrief point of view they go actually do you know what you had that was a world-class effort you know coming off a show why was that guy all over the place turns out his radio wasn't working so he's just done a red arrows display with no communication i mean that wouldn't happen to that level but it's got to a point of being able to think wow that is amazing you could have taken out eight other jets but you stayed there so rather than me now landing frustrated that it shouldn't have gone as well as it could i'm now sat there going wow what an absolute legend of a pilot he is to have got that far down the, down the road so so to summarize, it's important that we always debriefed. We always gave the person we were about to debrief an opportunity to explain their position so that we were educated on their point of view before we educated them on what was right and wrong. Uh, and then we, we took name out of it. So it was never personalized. Fantastic. Fantastic answer. Um, now, we've talked a little bit about mistakes and, uh, and, the, and this pressure that you work under. How do you deal with, you know, you've had lots of setbacks along the way. Um, how do you deal with setbacks, Dan? Uh, how do you deal with setbacks? It's a big, big question. Um, personally, because I've had a number, I, I don't revel in them. That's not, that sounds quite sadistic, doesn't it? But I appreciate what they mean. I, I, I see the value in them. I see where I can learn. I can see how I can develop. Uh, I can see other areas to move left and right. And Again, I've already mentioned a bit of a cliche at the start, another cliche, it's it's the problem is only at the horizon. You know, once you get there, you, you're just going to keep going. So it's it, it will pass. 
but there's ways in which you can make it pass quicker. And that's by accepting it early, understanding probably what went wrong, why was there a setback and, and what can do about it. Now, as we hear it all the time, control the controllables. Can you control that setback? No. Well, right, well, just take yourself for a long walk, maybe do whatever works for you. you know, get grounded again and go, well, look, I, I couldn't control that. So if I can't control it, I have to, the one thing I can control is my response and my emotion. Or did it, was there a setback because of me? Yeah. Well, what was it that I did that caused that? Because I'm going to get this opportunity again. It's going to happen. And next time I'm going to be ready for it. Yeah. It took me three separate interviews and you can only do them annually. So it took me three years to get into the red arrows. I got rejected twice. Not good enough. You know, it didn't hit the level, didn't fly the flying test well enough. Didn't come across as the person that they felt would be a good team member. Didn't come across as an ambassador for the United Kingdom when we go around the world. All those things you sit there. I have the moments where I go walking and think, wow, am I really that horrible person? But no, it's not because of that. It's because they want the best, the top 1%. And I could either sit there and go, well, I, I am a nice person and say they're wrong. It's like, well, they're not saying that. They're just saying to be a world-class individual operating that level. Then, And if you're, if you're willing to be playing in a game where the stakes are that high, you need to understand that you're not going to, well, I wish everyone the best success and that they do get things first time around. But how often do we see in business? How often do we see in personal relationships? How often do we see in just personal growth? We never get it right first time. And it's just being able to understand that, build from it, control the controllables and come back stronger. I knew you'd come up with a brilliant answer. That's deliberately why I asked you that question. Um, and then the obvious question, I suppose, similarities between life, business and the RAF. You know, what, what are the what are the mantras? What are the lessons you've learned that you can now apply and you are applying in in the business that you that you run today and actually just tell us about where you are today because I'm sure lots of people will be thinking okay so what's he doing at the moment what, what are those lessons you've learned that you've now carried forward in business uh, that's very kind so I've now that was flying is my passion there's no two ways about it you know and I say that's because for five years old I used to in fact they used to have to drain we had a pool at school which sounds very extravagant but it was southeast Asia every school had a pool I used to play water polo but they used to have to change the water once a week because there was aviation fuel uh, you know lying on the top of the water there because we were so close to the airport so we literally used to breathe avter and you know these massive so someone who's lived and literally breathed aviation from five years old all the way through now I'm 36 yeah, it's something I do. It is my passion. It's in my blood. It's what makes me tick. Now, I took that to such a level, uh, as I say, as a fighter pilot, as a Top Gun graduate, uh, and as a as a Red Arrows pilot. And and I still believe there's more to go with that. But to get to that level, that was my passion. Now that that's calmed down a little bit, I'm in a different world now. I fly private aircraft for families. That I've realized that that's lovely, but my passion is helping other people. My passion is helping create high-performance cultures. Uh, and I love talking to people. I love getting involved with businesses. I love you know, getting on podcasts and just if there's anything that gets that extra 1% out of someone's day, that's what that's what makes me tick now. So I now talk a lot about, well, when you say mantra, about the high performance culture, about team selection we've talked about, about briefing, about executing, about debriefing, about creating an all-encompassing world that either gets an extra 1%, 2%, 3%, or just gets you out of bed and makes you better than when you than you were yesterday and whether that's at a personal level with a coaching program that I've just designed and I'm launching or whether that's through words going on podcasts and speaking to great people like you or whether that's going into companies and delivering um, workshops or keynotes then that that's amazing and to get that message across is just well I hope it comes across in my voice now I, I, I'm passionate about it I love it it, it absolutely does uh, final question I wish we could go on speaking for the rest <laughs> of the day um, Communication. Can't leave this podcast without communication because you are 
by definition, a world-class communicator. You have to be, otherwise it would all go horribly wrong. Um, but the, the question, I guess, Dan, for you is, communication is one thing, like the old way of communicating, radio, uh, interpersonal skills that we've developed when we were younger. But now everything has kind of been moved onto a virtual platform. People are buried in their mobile phones. I, I guess that leads to the obvious conclusion that communication for most people is a, is a bit more challenging these days. So I know the answer to this question, but the importance of communication, is it as vital as it always is? And how do we circumvent some of the challenges that we have given the platforms that we now operate in, in order to become or, or maintain a world-class level of communication? Yeah, absolutely. It is, as in communication is absolutely valid and it has to remain there. You know, we talk about 70% of effective communication is visual, not verbal. So maybe that's why the, the pictures, the social media side comes in. But if you actually want to sit down and get a job done, it's that extra 30% that gets you up to 100% that gets you over that line. And that comes from meetings. That comes from, you know, being able to set out clear, defined and concise messages that team members can take on board. When I look at time as a fighter pilot and as a red arrows pilot, the whole thing was done off communication. The whole thing was done off communication. And that's because we needed to action an, an absolute action at an absolute time to absolute precision. And it's okay, you can talk about, hey, how about this time we do this? But if you want to take whatever it is to the highest level and get your message across, then it needs to be it needs to be processed in, in, in an absolute exact way. And don't forget, a message transmitted is not a message received unless it's acknowledged in the process in which you pushed it out. So not only is it to make it dynamic, if you, sorry, you have a dynamic environment that you want to get an effective message across, you need to check that that's been received dynamically as well. Very good indeed. Um, how do people get in touch with you? I mean, should anyone have enough money uh, to pay for you to fly them privately from one place to another, uh, put, putting, putting aside the fact that you may not be their pilot, how else do we find out about uh, the, the, the very talented uh, Dan Lowe's? Have you got a website? Are you, have you got social media? I mean, you're 36. Of course, you've got a social media presence. But have yep. you? Have, if we want to check you out, if we want to communicate with you, how do we do it? Please do. I'd love you to. So I am on Instagram. It's Dan Lowe's with two spaces between the Dan and Lowe's, so double underscore. Uh, but you'll also find me at, it's Dan at theperformancehackers.com, which is this new uh, company we set up going out and talking to people. Uh, and we do also have a podcast, which I feel shameless to, sorry, I feel too shameful to plug on yours, but it's coming soon. Please keep an eye out. It's called The Performance Hackers, talking about all things high performance with some amazing people who have achieved some wonderful things in their life. And we we go through just finding out what it is that people can use just in their day-to-day -day life just to get more out of everything they do. I look forward to being a guest, Dan. Um, can't wait to have, I can't wait to have you on. <laughs> final, final question, final question. Um, if you've listened to some of the podcasts, you know what's coming. And it's the question we ask all of our guests without exception. Nobody is let off the hook and you are no exception. Uh, the question is, given all of your amazing experience, um, you know, the, the trials and tribulations, the, the, the outrageous successes and, and the obstacles along the way, if there was just one rule to live your life by, one mantra, one um, focus, if somebody came up to you, a younger version of yourself maybe, and said, Dan, Give me that one snippet, the one thing that if nothing else mattered, I could just focus on this, what would it be? I would say take the situation seriously, not yourself. Oh, I love that. Say no more, because that is a perfect way to end this podcast. Um, 
what can I say? It's been a great honour. I mean, your your CV speaks for itself. But do you know what? Without being patronising, because it's not intended to be that at all, genuinely, uh, it is an, a very important series of messages, some incredible perspectives of life delivered in a very, very articulate uh, way. So thank you very much. There'll be very, very many people from around the world listening today going, wow, that was absolutely amazing. And I can't say how glad we are to have had you as a guest on the Sandro Forte podcast. It's been an honour and thank you so much for having me. And to all of you listening out there from all around the world, 52 countries, I think now, um, let's see if we can make it 53 by next week. The wonderful Dan Lowe's, what a talented, articulate, bright individual. All I would say to you all, this is my prediction for the future, look out for this guy because you're going to see him appearing as a conference speaker in different parts of the world uh, very, very soon, I have no doubt. Remember, every week, new guests joining us, going to be difficult to step into Dan's shoes for next week. So I'm not sure that is, but uh, they've got a tough act to follow. Remember to email us with a question. It's hello at sandrospodcast.com or just contact Dan yourselves if that's what you wish to do. Finally, connect with me. It's at Sandro40 on Twitter and the real Sandro40 on Instagram simply because somebody stole my name and I'm still trying to track down the culprit. Uh, remember, once again, thank you to Dan. Check him out. Um, do listen out for his new podcast, The Performance Hackers. Can't wait to listen to that myself. Once again, to Dan Lowe's, uh, RAF pilot, uh, Red Arrows team member extraordinaire. Uh, thank you once again and to all of you listening.